Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Casey Patrick joining you again to talk today about cardiovascular medication toxicity, specifically calcium channel blockers and beta blockers. Joining me today is our cardiac coordinator, Brad Ward, and we're going to start with some of the basics. You know, what are what are these medications? You know, they're used, why do we group them together? We group them together because they're used for similar disease processes. They're used in similar populations. But how do we recognize these? I think let's start with the beta blockers because they're pretty easy. Even if you have, you know, very little pharmacologic knowledge, pretty easy way to recognize beta blockers, Brad. They end in lol. They end in lol. So metoprolol. Labetalol. Labetalol. Carvedilol. Atenolol. Atenolol. With many, many others. Uh, Toprol being trade name for uh, metoprolol. Um, and these are used for hypertension, uh, rate control, uh, being being the uh, uh, major major uses for for beta blockers. Again, rate control and atrial fibrillation. Uh, calcium channel blockers, again, similar but a little bit different. Some of the more common calcium channel blockers used: amlodipine or Norvasc, uh, diltiazem. We're familiar with that one for for rate control. Uh, verapamil as well. Um, three of the more the more common calcium channel blockers, and they also act like beta blockers, depending on the class, and we'll talk a little bit more in a second about different calcium channel blocker classes, but they have varying effects depending on class, some more cardiac and rate controlling, diltiazem in that group, obviously one we're more familiar with, and some more uh, specific for the peripheral vasculature and more commonly used as antihypertensives. Again, norvascram, lodipine is gonna fall into that group. We see lots of folks on that medication one of the first-line therapies for hypertension. So, Dr. Patrick, why do these matter talking about as a specific class of toxiderma? Well, I think it's one that often gets left out. Um, we talk a lot about sympathomimetics and uh, opioid toxicity and you know sedative hypnotics, benzodiazepines, cholinergics, anticholinergics. But these are, first of all, these are common. Uh, over 50,000 calls per year for cardiovascular medication overdoses. Uh, they're, they can be very, very severe. So if you think about an antihypertensive or a rate control medication, what are you going to see when someone overdoses on calcium channel blockers or beta blockers? In the big picture, you're going to see a patient that's in shock and severely bradycardic. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty severe uh, presentation. Uh, calcium channel blockers, specifically Rapamil, is the most deadly uh, cardiovascular medication from a poisoning or overdose standpoint. And our population is aging. We see this on the nightly news all the time. And with an aging population, we're going to have more people with atrial fibrillation, more people with hypertension. So we're going to have more people on these medications. They're going to be you know, more commonly used, more commonly available. And that's going to lead directly to more availability for toxicity and for overdose. Lastly, you know, anytime we talk about uh, tox, and we've, talked, we've had some tox uh, discussions on the podcast before, uh, back to one pill killers and pediatric tox scenarios, extended release formulations are always going to be more dangerous because their effects are potentially delayed and prolonged. And there are extended release formulations in both beta blocker classes and calcium channel blocker classes. So I think those are, are all real reasons why these aren't the most common. You know, we're not going to see these as much as we see opiates or alcohol or sympathomimetics, but considering the severity and the, 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 uh, prevalence of these medications, I think they're ones that definitely need to be on our radar. Okay, so from a paramedic perspective, we arrive on scene, someone's complaining of a general sort of weakness, don't feel great, and we start to suspect 
one of these medications? How do we start just from the very, very beginning? And I think that's an, the answer to that question, I think, can apply across toxicology or overdose when that's on our differential. Even if it's, you know, if it's not, say it's a non-accidental overdose, so it's mm-hmm. non-intentional or intentional, we really still have to start with the same foundational approach. And that's going to, you know, everybody, where do we start? We start with ABCs. Okay. And in these situations, because we know that patients, you know, co-ingestions are common. So the, the metoprolol may have been washed down by, a, you know, a fifth of vodka. So the patient may be altered in bradycardic, right? So I think we have to start with ABCs, just just like any other patient. So we, we know how to do that. This is not a you know an ABC resuscitation podcast, but start there. If we, in our mind, move towards that differential of tox and overdose, we have to think about a few more specific things. First of all, decontamination. And really, from an oral medication perspective, pre-hospital perspective, your, your option there is charcoal. Uh, for the listeners out there that have charcoal in their protocols, we're not going to spend a ton of time talking about charcoal from from an MCHD perspective. You know, we don't we don't carry that now. We'll talk a little more detail in a second from airborne exposure, washing, washing eyes, washing uh, you know toxic substances off our hands. You know, those are all the core tenets of decontamination. But again, when we think about oral oral medications in the pre-hospital setting, we're going to be primarily uh, thinking about charcoal. Third, antidotes. So think if there's antidotes available, and we'll talk about specific potential antidotes and calcium channel blockers and beta blockers in a second. And finally, uh, supportive care. And that's going to be things like managing blood sugar, managing blood pressure, managing oxygenation. When the scales are tipped from from a tox standpoint, we want to level the playing field and the other, other aspects of patient care as much as possible. So if the patient is you know trying to clear that medication, we want to make sure that the Cardiac function, the lung function, uh, perfusion, oxygenation, all those things are stabilized. So ABCs, decontamination, antidotes, and supportive care. Seems pretty basic, but it's true, and I think it's really the, the place where we want to start. So really it's the same as any systematic approach to tox management. I, I think you know you can you could take those tenets and apply those to TCA overdose, to methamphetamine overdose, to opioids, opioids to benzos, you name it. Yes. Okay. So we know that bradycardia hypotension... That's the big ones. What else? Well, not to. I think we have to talk a little bit about receptors and and direct function of these medications, so that we can tease out the differences and know why we're treating and where we're treating, what we're treating, and how to anticipate uh, the problems that might arise. So I think it helps to remember some big big words: chronotropy, inotropy, and vasoconstriction or vasopressor effects. So when we think about chronotropy, that's just that's just rate. Inotropy is going to be your your pump function or your squeeze, and then your peripheral vascular effects, thirdly. And depending on the mode of action, we're going to have differing effects. So if a medication is more directed to cardiac chronotropy, then we're going to see more bradycardia. Whereas if the medication is directed more towards uh, peripheral vascular dilatation, then we're going to see more hypotension or, or more blood pressure effects. Specifically, the beta blockers, the effect that we're most concerned about is the beta-1 cardiac receptor. And with blockage of that cardiac receptor, that beta-1 cardiac receptor, we're going to have decreased chronotropy and, and ionotropy. So decreased pump and decreased rate. And so in those patients, we're going to see hypotension and bradycardia. As a counter to that, calcium channel blockers are a little more varied in their cardiovascular versus peripheral vascular effect. And that ratio depends on on the type. Um, there are really three classes, and I drop it to two to make it a little bit easier. There are dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. And the example of that one that's most common and the one we see all the time is going to be amlodipine or Norvasc, trade name Norvasc. And that those medications target more peripheral vasculature. So they're used more for antihypertension 
And so when we see an overdose of amlodipine, oftentimes we'll see more hypotension and less bradycardia, even reflex tachycardia in some cases um, as a response to, to the hypotension. Whereas if you take the other large class of calcium channel blockers, the non-dihydropyridines, diltiazem and verapamil being the main ones we're most familiar with in that group, they're used more for rate control. So when we see those patients, we're going to see more rate collapse. We're going to see more bradycardia. In large calcium channel blocker overdoses, oftentimes these divisions go out the window and the patients are going to be severely shocky, severely bradycardic. But just for grouping purposes, learning purposes, I think it helps to think about the peripheral vascular to rate control sort of ratio effect. So it sounds like they look exactly the same in, in the worst case scenario. In the worst case scenario, they are going to look pretty similar. We'll talk about a couple differences here as we move along. If we don't know what the patient ingested, so we pick up a potential tox patient, husband took all of his medications, the son or daughter aren't really sure exactly which medications he's on. We've all ran calls like that. He you takes see, something for blood pressure. I don't know what yeah, it is. Yeah, and you see, you see bottles from six, eight, ten months ago strewn across the floor with no labels on them. I mean, we've all, all been there for that one. Yep. Patients bradycardic, patients hypotensive, listen to the podcast, super, super sharp. You say, oh, this could be a, a cardiovascular medication toxicity. How do we know the difference between beta blocker and calcium channel blocker? And one of the, one of the easy keys, and again, it's not going to necessarily change our treatment, but just for, you know, for further treatment sake, for, you know, trying to pin down what's going on, uh, the sugar, blood sugar is a good place for us to start. Um, calcium channel blockers along with their peripheral vascular and cardiac effects, they also, they also inhibit pancreatic islet cell insulin release. So patients that overdose on calcium channel blockers, they're going to be uh, significantly hyperglycemic many times. So if you take that patient, you know, they're altered. They're, they've taken their meds with, with a fifth of vodka like we talked about before. You do your full analysis, full exam, full workup. You get a, you get a finger stick. They're going to be 250 or 270. So if you see bradycardia, hypotension, overdose situation, and elevated blood sugar, think calcium channel blocker. Beta receptors exist in the liver as well. We talked about beta receptors in the heart, beta 1 receptors. We know there are beta 2 receptors in the lungs. Uh, that's where our albuterol act. But there are also beta receptors in the liver. And those uh, exist to basically potentiate glucose release, uh, gluconeogenesis, and glycolysis. So the liver stores the sugar, the beta receptors in the liver say stimulated, let's, let's release some of that stored sugar. If we block those beta receptors in the heart, low heart rate, low blood pressure in the liver, low sugar release. So those patients are going to be hypoglycemic. So calcium channel blockers, sugar up, beta blockers, liver effects, sugar down because the liver can't release the sugar stores. Okay. So we're on scene. It's an overdose. We've been smart and we've decided this could be a beta blocker, calcium channel blocker overdose. So how do we start treating these in specific? Well, we sort of dipped our toes into decontamination um, when we talked about foundational approach to, to tox patients. Listeners out there, if you've got charcoal on, on your trucks, by all means, use it. We've, we've taken it off the trucks at MCHD really more for from a logistical standpoint. There are a couple things that we have to have in place before we use charcoal for oral medication toxicity. Number one is timing. So if you took the medication six hours before, charcoal is going to be of no use. Think about it. It's got charcoal is, is, is just going to basically act as a sponge. And if the medication has already been broken down and absorbed, it's no use. So it has to be within very, very uh, 
close proximity to time of ingestion. And secondly, most, most concerningly, where, where folks get concerned with charcoal use is patients' airway and mental status have to be intact. And again, co-ingestion being very, very common, calcium channel blocker plus benzodiazepine, calcium channel blocker plus alcohol, beta blocker uh, plus uh, tricyclic, all the things you think that can, can mix and make, make people altered, affect their you know, ability to control their airway. The last thing we want is to give them a big slug of charcoal, right? Because that's fine in the stomach to decontaminate and absorb and act like a sponge. It's not fine to exist in the distal airways. Uh, we worry really about aspiration. So if we're suspecting that it's been less than an hour, it's the charcoal's indicated, is there any, it's, it's, it's indicated across the board for calcium channel blocker and beta blockers. Yes. And you know, in all reality, the, the, the third reason why we don't have it logistically at MCHD is that our transport times are relatively short. So if we're within that hour and I'm in one of the local ERs and you deliver me a calcium channel blocker or a beta blocker overdose that looks or sounds or smells severe, I'm probably going to give charcoal. Uh, but again, I think that if I, if we were out in in West Texas and Odessa and we had, you know, 45 minute transport times, I think that that would be something we probably would consider with a little bit of different perspective, obviously. Whereas here in Montgomery County, we've got multiple receiving hospitals. We don't have long transport times. So it's often a decision better made in consultation with, with the emergency physician and the toxicologist from our standpoint. But I don't think that, again, you would not be wrong if you had it less than an hour, potentially severe ingestion, which both of these are intact mental status, intact airway. Okay. So we've covered ABCs. We've talked about decontamination. Now onto our antidotes and our, I'm not going to say the G word. It's our very favorite thing to give. So we'll, we'll get to glucagon in a second. When we think about antidotes for calcium channel blockers and beta blockers, there's some antidotes that you probably wouldn't list on your antidote list. But really, when we think about what happens with calcium channel blocker overdose and beta blocker overdose, we're, they're antidotes for the bradycardia, antidotes for the shock, and basically flooding the system with what has been blocked. So what are antidotes for shock? Fluids, impressors. When we block beta receptors, what, what endogenously acts on beta receptors? Uh, catecholamines. So we give catecholamines to flood the blocked beta receptors. We give fluids to counteract the vasodilatation. We give atropine to counteract the bradycardia. So these are real, not what we think of as typically antidotes, but in these situations, those are going to be really our foundation. And had an interesting calcium channel blocker verapamil overdose call here at MCHD in the last uh, little bit that really drove me to look more at sort of the current treatment and the current thought current guidelines of, of treating calcium channel blocker overdoses and in discussing with crews if you're listening out there you know there's a lot of you know depending on the severity of the block you know, first degree second degree complete block uh, junctional bradycardias is atropine going to be useful in those situations and I don't want to I don't want to get uh, too far off track with the discussion I feel like in these situations there's not a whole lot of harm in trying atropine regardless of the potential severity of the block, because these patients can be so sick. So I don't, there's not really a calcium channel blocker overdose or beta, beta blocker overdose that I wouldn't try atropine in. Just a little bit of an aside there. Again, we talked about pressors in both situations, often beta blocker and calcium channel blocker situations. Larger doses of pressors are needed than normal. 
So don't be afraid to start. If you see a patient that's shocky, bradycardic, whether you're primarily norepinephrine, as we are here at MCHD, whether you're an epinephrine user, oftentimes when these patients get to the ER, they may, may end up meeting multiple pressors. So don't be afraid to kind of start at the higher end there. A lot of services are still carrying dopamine. We talked about dopamine being dead to us here at MCHD on, on prior podcasts. Yep. But if you had, if I had nothing or dopamine, I would, again, you want to, you want to make sure that you're not messing around on the low end of your, of your dose range with these patients. Cause again, when they get to the hospital, often they're going to need really high doses of vasopressors. If you were left with the choice of having dopamine or epinephrine, you would choose epinephrine. epinephrine. Okay. Yes. Got it. And I think really epinephrine, norepinephrine, there's no clear, clear data to support one of the, one over the other there. Pacing is another option in any bradycardic patient. So I think I would, uh, you know, put pacing really high on your list of things that you want to attempt. If you get a shocky bradycardic uh, calcium channel blocker, beta blocker overdose, but be aware also that these people's hearts and their conduction system are poisoned by blocking their calcium channels and blocking their beta receptors. So transcutaneous pacing is very often unsuccessful. So if you don't see response to your, to your transcutaneous pacing, don't necessarily be surprised. And just like depressors, I'm not going to ease up on joules. I'm not going to ease up on rate. I'm going to kind of start on the high end in these folks as well. And then finally, what is, what, what is blocked in? So we've flooded the beta receptors with exogenous catecholamines, epi and norepi. What's blocked in the calcium channel blocker situation? Calcium. So to overcome that, we, we want to make sure that we're giving plenty of exogenous calcium. This is in the hopes that it just kind of makes it through? Makes it through. Yeah, you want to you basically flood the system. Uh, this is one specific spot from a protocol standpoint where this often is going to require deviations for, for folks that don't have this specifically written into their protocols out there. Uh, most all protocols for hyperkalemia, uh, wherever else you're using calcium are going to be a gram. I, I can't think of anywhere else where it's where it's more or different from that situation in most EMS protocols. Sure. But in looking at the literature and toxicology recommendations for managing these these patients, often it's recommended to give up to three grams to start. So much higher than normal protocol. So if you see a super sick patient and you suspect calcium channel blocker, beta blocker, even if it's not in your protocol, I'd advise utilizing your uh, you know, your medical your, direction. Yeah, your medical direction. Your, you know, consult a supervisor, consult online medical direction. However, however, your your service operationally deals with with off protocol use of medication because this is one where you really you want to go there pretty quickly. Is there a downside or any danger to that high starting dose? Over long term, yes, you could get into trouble with hypercalcemia, but three milligrams in the short term in a situation where you're you're not going to do this in an undifferentiated patient. Right. So it's a risk benefit. Analysis. Yeah. And I think it, it, it depends on your, your confidence that this is calcium channel blocker overdose. I think. So if, if you, you find someone hypotensive, bradycardic and clutching of a rapamil bottle. I think start starting with three grams is where you want to go. Okay. Yes. So we did not mention glucagon in there for disclosure. Glucagon is in our protocol here at MCHD, but looking at current recs, uh, toxicology preferences really in fallen out of favor in the last five to 10 years. And there are several reasons for that. There's not a lot of evidence for benefit with glucagon, either in animal studies or in human studies. Quick aside, if you look at the history of glucagon studies in calcium channel blocker, beta blocker overdose, glucagon pre 
mid-90s was derived from mammalian pancreatic tissue. Recombinant glucagon was developed around that time period, and that's what we use now. But many of the early 70s, 80s, early 90s studies that potentially showed benefit for glucagon and calcium channel blocker and beta blocker overdoses, what else comes in mammalian pancreatic tissue besides glucagon? It's insulin. So there's some thought that the benefit in the early studies may not have been from the glucagon at all. It may have been from, an ins- from the insulin that was in that, t- in that mammalian pancreatic tissue-derived drug. So hold that thought for a second. Secondly, glucagon is really expensive. High doses are needed, five grams plus. Vomiting is a major side effect with glucagon. These are often altered mental status, questionable mentation, questionable airway control patients. So aspiration is a, is a huge risk. So we're going to give an aspiration risk patient a medicine that makes them vomit. So questionable at best. All that said, it's still in our protocols, but just wanted to mention that it's falling or has fallen out of favor from, from the toxicology standpoint. All right. So if glucagon is out, then what else is in? Just as a quick disclaimer, there's not a ton of evidence for what is in either. And I'm not a toxicologist. And if you're listening and you're toxicolo- toxicology inclined and, and have uh, suggestions or thoughts to add, feel free to fire them all way, our way on the podcast email. But right now, the, the newer, more in vogue treatments for calcium channel blocker and beta blocker, large, severe, hemodynamically unstable overdoses are high-dose insulin therapy, first of all. And several reasons it's proposed that that works. And when I talk about high-dose insulin, just for comparison's sake, a DKA patient, sick DKA patient, arrives to the hospital The classic textbook starting dose for insulin is 0.1 units per kilogram. The dose for the starting dose for high dose insulin therapy in calcium channel beta blockers is one unit per kilogram. So that's a lot of insulin. Tenfold, and oftentimes up to 10 units per kilogram, a hundredfold greater than you would start a DKA patient on. Why why do we think that works? At high doses, insulin has a pressor like effect, and there's also thought that higher dose insulin improves cardiac metabolism, cardiac glucose uh, utilization. So fuel. If you set the heart to work up better. Mm-hmm. Fuel for the heart. Secondly, uh, intralipid or uh, fat emulsion therapy is another potential treatment for these patients when they're, again, these are, these are not the ones that took two or three pills and have a heart rate of 58. These are the ones that are crashing and these are the suicide attempts that took a bottle. This is not grandma that may have taken in an extra one. You got it. Okay. And how does intralipid work? What is it? Basically, it's just it's just fat. And we inject fat intravenously. And many of the calcium channel blockers specifically are lipophilic. In other words, they like fat. So instead of charcoal sponging in the stomach, the fat in the bloodstream sponges the excess calcium channel blocker or beta blocker. And finally, near and dear to your heart, I had to put it in or I, I thought that I'm, I might get swatted with the microphone. No, I appreciate this. I do. Uh, a final option in these patients that has been successful in case reports is is ECMO. So basically putting pe- putting people on the pump and, uh, and that oh. just gives them time to metabolize out all the drug. Time to metabolize the drug. You all got right. it. So we talked about one pill killers earlier. Any of them in this category? Yeah. So the, go back, listen to the one pill killers podcast. Don't want to belabor the point, but anytime you have an extended release medication, it's potential to hang out and potential to last longer than we think is there. And calcium channel blockers and beta blockers and, and situations in, in toddlers, peds patients, little little scooters, uh, definitely fall in that one pill killer list. Just for completeness sake, there are a couple beta blockers that can act a little bit squirrely. Propranolol being one of those. Propranolol is often, uh, it's not first line. It was one of the first 
developed first release beta blockers, you still see it around a bit out there. Metoprolol's gained favor. But if you see someone with a propranolol overdose, oftentimes it can look more like a, a TCA overdose because it has significant sodium channel effects. So you're going to see seizures, treat with benzos. You're going to see a widened QRS, just like you would with, with Elevil, amitriptyline, any of the other TCAs. So think about large doses of bicarb in those patients. Sotolol is another beta blocker that has uh, additional effects beyond beta blockade. It also affects calcium, or excuse me, uh, potassium channels. Sotolol will be commonly used for rate control in atrial fibrillation patients. So if you get someone with a sotolol overdose, they're going to be bradycardic, they're going to be hypotensive, but due to the potassium channel effects, they can also have prolonged QT and potential for uh, torsades. So you want to think about mag in those patients. And that's in addition to traditional treatment? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So we're running low on time. I think that about wraps us up. So what are the things, you've listened to all this, what are the, what are the things you, you got to know, your must-know points? Don't lose the forest for the trees and tox patients. You always are going to start with ABCs, fall back on your foundational resuscitation tactics and, and, and go-to points. Target the symptoms, bradycardia, atropine and pacing, shock, fluids and pressors, flood the body with what's blocked or missing, so catecholamines and beta blockers, and calcium channel blockers, calcium specifically and calcium channel blocker overdoses. Often higher doses of calcium warranted may need a consultation depending on how your protocol is written and how your how your system works operationally. Glucagon, again, falling out of favor a little bit. We're not kicking it out yet, but uh, just know from an overall emergency care standpoint that it's, it's not the wonder cure, wonder antidote that we once thought that it was. These are medications we're going to see more and more as our population ages, more elderly folks, more hypertensive folks, more, more folks with more atrial fibrillation. So it's going to be more and more commonly used, so available and potentially abused. And remember that there, there are meds in this list, your extended release verapamil specifically, some of your extended release metoprolol that can kill with one pill. So get a peds patient that got into grandma's medicine and the sotolol is spilled and the patient looks fine. The patient needs observation. Make sure you can educate the families and talk to them intelligently. Go back and check out the one pill killers for more information on that. So we ran out of time today. Brad, thanks for joining me. If you have questions or comments, as always, please uh, hit us up at the podcast email and we will talk to everyone again soon. Thanks.